Hi, I'm David Freudberg, the host of Humankind. I actually grew up in public radio. I've been in the field since I was 16. And from the start, I was taught to offer people content that will inform and enlighten. This podcast is dedicated to spreading ideas that speak to the highest part of our listeners rather than the lowest common denominator. If you like what you hear, we're asking for your help please leave us a kind review on iTunes so others can find us. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and a special grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. It is literally comfortable. In the summer, the house is cool. In the winter, it is warm. There are no drafts. Now, as some people who've lived in New England a very long time, we know the importance of suffering in a New England winter. It's Does the, it build character? It's the, it builds character, and it's the topic of many cocktail party conversations. But it's totally unnecessary. <laughs> there are other ways to build character. A top global warming expert on ways our homes can be comfortable, cheaper to maintain, and climate-friendly. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. The greenhouse gases that are altering the global climate have numerous sources, Automotive vehicles release their gases through the fuel they burn. Industrialized agriculture, with its heavy dependence on fossil-based fertilizers and its waste products, is another chief source of heat-trapping gases. And so are the buildings most of us inhabit at work, school, and home, which consume energy for heat, for cooling, and whenever else we use electricity. Everything that we do that releases uh, carbon dioxide or methane or other gases into the atmosphere that trap heat contributes to global warming. William Muma is an internationally respected climate scientist. He has served as lead author of major studies by the Nobel Prize-winning Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Muma devotes a lot of time to figuring out how we can maintain enjoyable lifestyles while discharging less global warming pollution. He cites a Michigan State University study on minor changes from routine auto maintenance to using low-flow showerheads that can add up to a 20% drop in a household's emissions. They looked at things that people have actually done, change light bulbs, and only, I don't know, 15% of households have been willing to do that. From from incandescent, the old old Thomas Edison light bulb to those... Weirder, weirder looking, looking light bulbs. fluorescent right. light bulbs. Uh, they looked at uh, do people, uh, if they have a furnace, do they do a night setback of four or five degrees? And again, it's fifteen percent maybe did it. You mean yeah. turn the heat down? Turn at the night. heat down at night. Um, do people um, uh, replace their old refrigerator with a new efficient one? By the way, refrigerators today are. F- only use only one quarter of the energy of refrigerators at the time of the first oil shocks in 1973. If you look at all those savings and what people have done and assume that people would continue to do just those things in the proportion that they have been done in the past, we would reduce our emissions by the amount 
emitted by the country of France. Just our households. So when people say, well, we can't do anything, it's, it's not true. We could do a lot. It's a question... With, with relatively minor, relatively uh, minor adjustments, adjustments I mean, to we lifestyle. have to do a whole lot more than that in the long term. But, you know, we can get started, and then that puts us on a track to do the big things that we will need to do later on. The big things may involve changes in public policy, such as cap-and-trade systems and transportation infrastructure, to limit the release of greenhouse gases. But a substantial amount of emissions result from choices we make as individuals, including how we travel. Transportation fueled by petroleum accounts for an estimated 23% of total worldwide emissions associated with global warming. That's a lot. In the U.S., it's much higher. About, about a third of, of our emissions come from the transport sector. So a third of the, the heat-trapping greenhouse gases yes. emitted by Americans by come from transportation. transportation. Yes, much higher than the rest of the world. Now, what can we do? Well, you know, for starters, and it's interesting what has happened in the last couple of years, uh, for starters, um, uh, the next time you replace your vehicle, replace it with one that is more efficient. No so, matter so, what it so is. Even, even if you don't go with a hybrid vehicle yep. or a purely electric vehicle, just being more efficient in use of gasoline can yes. have an impact. Well, the, the, I did, I did the, the math on this once, and it's kind of interesting. If you, if you buy any vehicle, even if it were, if you had a Hummer before that was getting 12 miles per gallon, and you replace it with a SUV that got 24 miles per gallon, which we're beginning to see available, over the life of that vehicle, which is about 11 or 12 years, you would be reducing your emissions from driving by about 5% a year every year. That gets us on a, that's on a trajectory that works. Is 5% enough? 5% is a good start, and it would be, and, and it's a huge reduction. Uh, the bigger the vehicle, um, the, a 50% a, a uh, uh, reduction in energy use is, is a lot of energy use uh, that you're saving, a lot of emissions that you're reducing. Now, if you go to the other end of the spectrum and you already have a Prius that's getting 45 or 50 miles per gallon, uh, that's now, that's going to be the standard in the, in the not the next round of, of, of efficiency gains, but the one after that. That's been agreed to by the auto companies and by the, by the government. They have basically signed a deal, which is fascinating because it's, it's um, for years the auto industry claimed that they couldn't do this and so forth. And now the number of vehicles that are, that, are, that are 30 miles per gallon or more, or 40 miles per gallon or more, every company is advertising that. Okay, I thought these were electric. Uh, it is, yeah. So what are you doing at a gas station? Uh, well, it, it still takes gas to go farther. But you're not getting gas. True, not this time. Uh, don't have to gas up very often. So you have to go to the bathroom? <laughs> no. Yes, you do. In surveys that have been done, everyone from the biggest SUV driver to the Prius driver, their biggest complaint about their vehicle is it should get better fuel mileage. And that's probably driven, so to speak, largely because of the cost of Certainly fuel. cost is a big, is a big factor. 
But it's almost like we need to train ourselves to think of fuel cost, whether at the gasoline pump or fuel costs at home, as also being environmental costs. That's right. Plus, let's remember, a significant fraction of our defense budget goes to protecting the sea lane so we can ship oil around the world. That doesn't appear as a, on our gasoline tax, probably should, or our home heating oil tax. Instead, it comes out of general revenues. The latest, the U.S. military says it will not tolerate any Iranian disruptions of oil shipments in the Strait of Hormuz. The threats and counter-threats come at a time when the Iranian Navy is connecting war exercises in the Strait and inevitably coming close to U.S. warships. In the meantime, the blustering affects the price of oil. Well over $100 billion, I mean, every year, goes to just protecting our access to oil. That's part of the tax bill that we pay. That's part of the tax bill we pay. The growing urgency about climate change derives from a stark realization. Some of the damage done will be irreversible in our lifetime. Based on heat already captured by greenhouse gases, climate scientists believe the Earth will continue to warm for another hundred years or more. The oceans will continue to warm for centuries or even millennia. It is still possible to arrest the most severe effects, says Tufts University environmental policy professor William Muma, but only if we curb carbon and other greenhouse gas emissions within a limited window of time. We have to do this before 2050. We have until we have 40 years, basically, to do this. We have to do what by 2050? We have to get down, we have to reduce our total emissions by probably 75 or 80 percent in 40 years. 75 or 80 percent? Yes. Of all the greenhouse gas emissions associated with what we do in our homes, with transportation, with agricultural practices. Yes. Within this relatively brief span. That seems a drastic change. Right. Well, it's only, it, it's, only, uh, it's only about 4% a year. They arrive at this calculation because each year we are reducing by 4% of a smaller number than that for the year before. It's kind of like compound interest in reverse. So for people trying to counteract the effects of climate change, the rule of thumb is for each year until 2050, cut your emissions by an additional 4%. So think about what you have to do in a year. You change your light bulbs in the first year. That gets you way beyond 4%. That doesn't mean you're supposed to coast the next year. No, absolutely not, because the guy next door didn't change his. (laughs) So we have to compensate for our irresponsible neighbors. Uh, The point is, on an individual basis, it's manageable. And if we actually, as, uh, say, California and Massachusetts are doing, having uh, a a clear set of forward-looking policies that move rapidly in this direction, it means we're going to be replacing our power plants with low and zero-emitting power plants. I mean, most of our, something like 65% of our power plants in this country are beyond their technical lifetime. 
I mean, there are power plants in this country that were we're still using old coal plants that were built in 1931. Well, let's let's talk about the heat trapping gases released into our atmosphere and the use of electricity, um, especially for the three biggies: refrigeration, lighting, and televisions. Yes. Those mm-hmm. are three sources and, and, and air, air conditioning. Air conditioning, air conditioning is big. Yeah. That, that consume an enormous amount of electricity. And, of course, we take electricity for granted, uh, except when there's a power outage. Yes. <laughs> uh, but usually it's available literally at the flick of a switch. This is where they root the power, where they plot the day's power requirements for everything from making toast or brewing the morning coffee to running factory assembly lines and turning on the light over the operating table in the hospital. This 1952 promotional film sponsored by the General Electric Company praised the amazing benefits of access to electric power. Electrification was still relatively new in many rural regions of the United States. At the time, little attention was paid to the huge environmental footprint of generating most electricity, but concern about global warming has changed that. Well, the first thing is to um, reduce the amount that we use. William Muma. Slightly more than half of all the electricity in the United States is generated by burning coal at a power station. And coal puts out the most carbon dioxide per unit of energy you get out of any of the fuels. More than oil, more than gasoline, except for wood. Coal is the, is the biggest contributor to... Um, uh, it's the biggest, biggest source of energy in the world for all purposes, uh, industrial purposes, uh, home, uh, amazingly enough, heating and electricity. So every time you flick a switch, think of a puff of heat-trapping gas going up a stack somewhere because most of our electricity, something like 85% of it comes from either coal or natural gas, or in New England, some of it comes from burning oil. So although we don't think of it, it's out of sight, out of mind, a direct connection between our use of electricity and these gases that trap heat in the atmosphere, produce the greenhouse effect, and contribute to global warming. That's right. With the birth of the electrical age, a nation's standard of living surged forward. The nerve center of the new way of life is the dispatcher's center of the utility that serves your community. One recommendation I've heard is for people to experiment with keeping a log of their energy use. How many miles they drive per week, how much electricity is used over the course of a day or a week. Otherwise, it's just so easy to lose track of how much energy we're actually consuming. It's actually a very interesting exercise, and it usually shocks people. Uh, let me just give you an example. If, if, if you look at the average number of miles that Americans drive in a year, if you drive just one day less per month, you reduce the amount of gasoline you burn in the year and hence the emissions associated with it. Assuming you drive exactly the same way, you don't drive more carefully and all that sort of thing. Maybe you carpool with somebody that one day. Yeah, or you, or you work from home. You know, or, or you do or you something. Take public or you take public transport one day a month. Uh, that's that's over three percent reduction in that year. Now that's not bad, you know. And if you can figure out how to do it two days a month, you've done it maybe six or seven percent in two years. 
So there are ways in which you can connect what you do, but, only, but if you keep a log, you can keep track of this. Now, for those people who have kids, it's a great thing for kids to do. And, and for those who care about reducing emissions, it's great to have kids on your parents' case telling them to cut their reductions because they're really good at it. <laughs> we know that worked with the recycling movement. Absolutely. Which was essentially incubated in elementary schools and junior high schools across the country. Exactly. As, as, as one of our friends with a fourth grader who had just learned about recycling said, there is no moral indignation like that of a fourth grader when you put the can in the wrong bin. <laughs> <laughs> and they will notice. And they will notice. <laughs> Exploring ways that individuals can reduce their environmental footprint and counteract global warming. You're listening to a Humankind special, Hope in Action. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, please visit humanmedia.org. William Muma does not confine his interest in environmental protection to his scientific work for the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's also part of his home life, a passion he shares with his wife, Margot Muma. She's a former public health worker who now devotes her time to advising homeowners and builders on ways to cut energy use and thus reduce their global warming footprint. We decided that we wanted to have minimal and impact on the environment um, and to live as consciously as we could um, to minimize our energy use. The Moomaws divide their time between an apartment in Arlington, Massachusetts, near the campus of Tufts University, where Bill teaches environmental policy, and a charming property they own in Williamstown, situated at the northwestern corner of Massachusetts, near the border of Vermont and New York State. The Mumas intentionally designed their Williamstown home as a model of low-carbon living. And so the first thing was, because it was a lovely piece of land and um, actually a pretty active and healthy ecosystem with supporting quite an array of wildlife and having uh, both meadows and woods as well as a pond, um, the first thing we decided to do in building that house is to cut a minimum of trees, um, and to site the house within the natural landscape. Um, there was a meadow, so we didn't have to cut trees to have good solar access. Um, and as it turned out, the loveliest view uh, was facing south. That was one of the reasons we chose that property. Um, and so we could orient our house um, facing south as well. So maximize your exposure to sunlight and get a gorgeous view. Yes. Um, the second thing we thought was we didn't want this house um, to stick out like a sore thumb. Although we're very much enamored of modern architecture, we wanted this house to at least suggest the vernacular architecture of that part of the world, kind of 19th century farmhouse idea. But to have it totally modern 21st century in terms of its systems, in terms of its insulation, in terms of um, other things that would minimize our energy use. So we borrowed both concepts from the 19th century when um, 
there was no artificial lighting and heating was mostly by wood. Um, and things from the 21st century, which was heating by solar panels um, and triple-pane glass and well-insulated walls um, to deal with the, with the winter. Was it a lot of fun to sit down and dream this place up? I think uh, people who build houses love dreaming about the house before they start, and we use the word build your dream house, and... Um, our, our dream house had uh, both aesthetic qualities as well as environmental qualities and energy use qualities that went into the equation. Um, and those were there right from the beginning. It wasn't that we went to the architect and said, these are the number of rooms we want, and we want high ceilings, and we want um, a deck and a porch, and so on and so forth. We said we wanted to make um, minimal impact. We wanted it to be very energy efficient, and we also wanted it to be beautiful. And I think uh, we succeeded. By all indications, the Mumas succeeded wildly. They built an all-solar-fueled home completed in 2007. A marvel of energy efficiency, it's also visually elegant, featuring large, tightly insulated windows throughout. As sunlight streams in, so does natural warmth. Cherry and maple cabinetry and furniture give an impression of Scandinavian design. There's no oil or gas, just electric heat powered by rooftop solar panels, which convert sunlight into electricity. The panels are about 10 square feet each, most sitting atop the house. But the Mumas calculated that to generate enough electricity, they'd need a bit more roof space. So they added a large shed out back, also with panels on top. The shed is for storage of things that don't need to be in heated space, like garden equipment and skis, bicycles, canoe. The roof of the shed um, is oriented in such a way that it accommodates um, about 40% of our solar panels. 60% are on the house and about 40% are on the shed. And this is a total of how many solar panels? Uh, 66 altogether. And uh, for people more technically trained, 73 a kilowatt array. Their solar panels produce enough electricity, an average of about 500 kilowatts per month, to cover all household needs for the entire year. This includes enough electric heat to get the Mumas comfortably through a New England winter. But they still connect to the local power grid. Margot Muma. Because the sun doesn't shine evenly 24 hours a day throughout the year, uh, we find ourselves in a situation where during the late spring, summer, and early fall, we are producing more energy than we use and therefore exporting it to the grid. So you're basically a, a power plant. We're a small power plant. And then um, uh, between about mid-November and sometime in March, uh, we are actually importing from the grid. And so we are zero net energy on an annual basis because so, so, it balances out. So in effect, you made a deposit over the summer right. because yes. your amount of electricity generated from your solar panels on the roofs was a surplus over what you used. And then withdrawing that amount out of the energy bank, known yes. as your electric company, uh, during the months when you're able to generate less on your own. You can own. think about it like a savings bank account in that way, yes. And you're saying over the course of a year it comes to about zero? Yes, mm -hmm. yes. We may be plus or minus 
200, 300 kilowatt hours, but it's very close to that. The solar panels meet their fuel needs, but the MUMAs do end up paying minor utility fees because they link to the power grid. Our cost, because of those meter reading fees and various things like that, comes to about $120 a year. It's for heating and lighting and pumps and fans and uh, every plug-in device. It's everything that everything in this house runs on electricity and hot water. Hot water is a big user of energy. Um, and the, the hot water is heated through electricity? Um, it's heated by a heat pump that is run by electricity. The heat pump actually pumps on the water to raise its temperature rather than heating it directly with a heating element. Bill and Marco Muma have shown it's possible to live in a truly lovely home and keep their environmental footprint to a bare minimum, a goal more and more of us may confront as the climate change crisis deepens. But the Mumas are quick to add that not everyone can afford or will need to live at the level of tasteful style they've chosen. You can see photos of their home at our website, humanmedia.org. Figuring in federal tax credits, they estimate a homeowner would pay today between thirty dollars and $40,000 on average for a comparable solar installation. The house uh, that we built, if we had decided not to do solar and decided to just heat it with propane or natural, well, we couldn't do natural gas because we don't have it, but if we had access to it, it would only use um, something like, um, like, like 14 or 15 percent as much heat as a code-built house, that is one that meets the code. And, and so if you really want to do this on the, you know, at, at low cost, build the super-insulated house and then put in conventional heating. You reduce your emissions by 85%. That's, that's great. So what are some tips for those of us who don't have the privilege of living in a solar house but who want to heat our homes and cool our homes and have hot water and to reduce or perhaps even minimize environmental impact? I would say insulate your house is probably the most cost-effective thing you can do. And if you insulated it 20 years ago, insulate it again, because that insulation has, is simply not as effective as what you could do today. And do you recommend blowing insulation into the walls? It depends upon the, how the house was built, what you have there to begin with. But blown-in cellulose is one very effective insulation. Insulating first with the attic, then the walls if they're accessible, um, sills, um, those are things all, all make, make a lot of sense. Um, when it's time to replace windows, replace windows, otherwise use storm windows, use um, pleated shades on the inside, various kinds of things to reduce either your heating or your cooling load. This applies to both parts of the country where um, people are cooling nine months a year. Um, the second thing is uh, look at the electrical consumption of everything you plug in. Is the television on when nobody is watching it? I don't like your accusatory tone. Well, I'd use a different tone, but I'm trying to accuse you of something. Gabby, you have to admit, Bree, there does seem to be a link between you and Mr. Creepy Letter Writing Guy. So you can sort of systematically go around your house and look at everything that you plug in and say, first place, is this necessary? Uh, second, is it on when I don't need it? 
Um, and thirdly, uh, replace, replace light bulbs as you replace your appliances rather than saying, gee, this dishwasher's only $300 and the other one's $600, but the $300 one is using twice as much hot water, three times as much electricity, so on and so forth. So go for the Energy Star things and even compare the tags between them because there are a lot of brands and models that now make Energy Star and some are a lot better than others. You know, just be a wise shopper, an energy-wise shopper. Margot Muma, a consultant to homeowners about energy use, and her husband, William Muma, longtime lead author at the Nobel Prize-winning Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliard. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Art Cohen and Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston. Program development provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, part two of Hope in Action, is Humankind Program number 174. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.